Lying is a delightful thing for it leads to truth. Lying is a delightful thing for it leads to truth. This was early on in Crimes and Punishment by Dostoevsky, which, by the way, is a book that when I started it, I instantly knew it's actually not true. See, it's a book that I've heard so much over the years. It's been kind of on the, just like Kafka, I heard that name forever. So it was sort of in my, this must be somebody great. This must be a, p a piece of great art and literature. And so when I started reading it, I think I already had the idea that I will like it. And then as I started reading, I, I did believe instantly that the book will be fascinating and there's going to be something in it for me. But the early reading was very, I have to say, it was sort of dense. And the main character is, at the beginning, just not very likable, right? So it's so dark and the main character is so not likable and things are kind of it's it's not Dostoevsky doesn't write at least maybe in the translation to English it's not as beautiful writing as Tolstoy and it's not it's as not, it's not like riding a bike downhill through a nice landscape no no, no. it's not it's effortful it yeah it, it doesn't have that lightheartedness and it's yeah. not that po poetic flow of describing things in the sentences yeah. just like gallop it's much more dense and it's slow. It's like walking through mud a little bit, right? You walk through mud and it's gray and rainy and the character you don't like. And so you're like, why am I doing, why am I following this character? I don't even like him. I don't hate him, but I really don't care for him to be mm -hmm. following him through the mud. Like this is kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. But I have to say now I'm uh, kind of at, the second half of the book and at around around 40% into the book he got me like then i st i realized the shift in me where it went from there's pages that i really like but there's also lots of pages where i just work through the mud and i am not in this like state the most beautiful state in reading when you really get addicted to the book, where you really are delighted in reading and you don't want to stop and you want to start, right? I never had that for almost half the book. It was always a little bit of a work effort and never that kind of effortless, I want more, more of this. And then it shifted. And now I'm kind of in this addicted state where I'm super invested in the characters, what is going on, the state it creates within me. And I'm like, I want to, I need to finish this book and I want to know the resolution and I want to know what's going to happen to these people because I care now. But it took a while. This, this book took a while to get me there. But it's always delightful when it happens. It always is a beautiful thing once you are really in, once the people on the page have come to life so much that you care, that you deeply care and really need to know what is going to happen to them and how the story is going to unfold. And it's deep, dark shit, obviously. But in one of the, the, one of the few things that I highlighted uh, in the first half of the book was the sentence, you know, lying is a delightful thing mm -hmm. for it leads to truth. 
that sentence stood out to me because you don't we don't usually hear lying described as a delightful thing that points to truth that leads to truth now when i brought this up once with you you had a response which is a typical which is like 50% of the time maybe less 40% of the time that i'm like excited about something like this a remaining response would be eh because if you look at it from the other side this is wholly unremarkable and not true right this is kind of like <laughs> it used to be 70% of the time that would be the mean response but i would say in the last years it's more it's not half the time it's a little less than half the time but it's a significant I mean, amount of time i already know at the end of this i'm going to look like an uh, you know idiot because uh, i mean Dostoevsky, but but i'm curious to understand more about this but what's your first response when it's, when i say lying is a delightful thing because it leads to truth so my very first that i didn't share was like huh what wait curiously right and then it was Okay, probably in the way that what we lie about, we make an effort to conceal something about and what we conceal is kind of the thing that is the truth, right? So it points towards that if there's a if we lie about something. And I was like, yeah, but everything in a way points to truth, whether it's lying or this or a joke points to truth, a, a comment points to truth, a compliment points to truth. Uh, I don't know. So I was like, uh. everything yeah, that's true. Everything either points towards truth or away from it. But the way I think about this is that a lie is a much stronger signal towards truth than a half-truth. I actually tweeted this a day later. that Actually, half-truths tr half are more dangerous to the truth than lies. Why? Because they're more muddled. Because the person that utters a half-truth understands himself less that what he's saying is not the truth, right? That is kind of a convenient, concealed, watered-down, or morphed way of looking at the truth in a way. It's just a lie, but it feels true because it has true components in it, right? So when I say something that's sort of truth but is concealing certain areas, it's much harder for me to see what I'm doing. And it's much harder for other people to clearly see what I'm doing. So I'm mudding the waters, Versus a lie, it, it's sort of like eating something that's sort of sweet and a little bit bitter and you don't know if it's going to be uh, bad for you or not, right? It's mixed signals. Or eating something that is disgustingly bitter where you might spit it out instantly because you know this might be dangerous. This, the, the way this tastes tells my body this is not for consumption, right? And I think in the same way, when I when people lie, the stronger the lie, the more awareness there is, an internal conflict there is about the very fact that I'm lying, and I can't forget that. And so that lie is hanging over my head, like a like a flashlight that tells me that there's something that I'm concealing. And I think also to other people, not always, obviously, but in the abstract, a strong lie might be much more obvious to spot than when we are saying things that are half-truths or things that we're unsure about. I think thinking about a lie as a very as a strong, just like a stronger signal that there is, stronger signal towards where the real truth is. 
just like in a similar way to the philosophy of when I'm really angry at somebody, right? Anger, you know, you're like, we could go, anger also points to truth, right? Love points to truth. But um, I think we think of lies, I think without having thought about it, in, intuitively we would say if somebody just says a half truth, that's better than saying a bold lie. But I think the bold lie, maybe in the abstract, in the long term, is kind of a more inconvenient or a stronger sign towards truth than the half-truth. That's kind of the way that I'm thinking or marinating or interpreting this. Not to say that lying is good, but lying, people lying is an important step in the dance. I think a more useful step in the dance of trying to figure out the truth than many other things that are, might be more t tamer versions of what we call yeah. a lie. Maybe I also am missing the context of where this came up and everything. So, right. But to me, a good lie actually fits in very well with a lot of truth and connects to a lot of truth, right? And it's wrapped into truth versus a bad lie. And, and good, I mean, like convincing. Versus a bad lie is a lie that's like completely undetached to any truth and not related to any truth. And it's like when I went to school, there was a boy who said, oh, I found a treasure chest full of gold in my staircase, right? And he said, yeah, okay, come on, Benjamin. <laughs> Benjamin. <laughs> Benjamin, come on, Benjamin. We all know that's not so, true. <laughs> Meanwhile, Benjamin had found fucking gold. <laughs> He's like, cynic, okay, bitches. The fucking cynical, like, nine-year-olds were, like, pushing up their glasses on the, no, Benjamin, you did not find the treasure. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that and is interesting. In Anna Karenina, right, that, that chapter where she is losing her mind, all of that madness and insanity works because it's always detached to something real. And then she kind of makes a little twists and interprets it a different way or sees it a different way, right? But it's not completely detached from, from reality. Let's actually read that part. And maybe we won't be able to read the whole thing because it's like a bunch of pages. But yeah. I know that I've highlighted a few things as examples. So this is at the very end of the book, Anna Karenina. And this woman has gone through a lot of turmoil, has made a lot of decisions, had had a lot of drama in her life. And this last bit describes basically her going insane or having a psychotic breakdown. And at the very end, taking her own life, right? Now, the thing that struck me when reading that bit and then I'll highlight uh, I'll, I'll read some pieces that are highlighted here that I've highlighted and we can discuss and debate this but the way I read that that whole part the reason why I th thought it was incredible one of the most incredible bits in the book was that on that ride to the train station Right? She's at that, on that carriage, and she's seeing people, and there's little situations everywhere. And she's having an inner dialogue, and the inner dialogue is going kind of erratic between her own life and her thoughts and her situations with the people, and then observing others externally and having thoughts about them. And when I read it, all the external things that she saw were actually pointing to parts of her life where she didn't live the truth, where she had intense anger. So she would see 
you know, a family trying to go on a vacation, having a good time, and she would think you cannot run away from you the truth. Run away. Yeah. 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 yeah, even, even the dog that you bring, yeah, it's gonna <laughs> be gonna help you. <laughs> but but there's many many parts. I'll read them. I haven't yeah. read them again yeah. since the first reading. So yeah. I'll see how it, it, it plays out, unfolds in this reading. But to me, every single thing she would see outside on the way to her death and that she had vile, angry, you know, despicable thoughts about where the things manifested, like the pl playing out of parts of her own life and the anger and, and disgust she had at those people, those situations was the anger and disgust she had towards herself because of those pieces of her life or the way that she, she, she lived through that. So the first one is the one that we both obviously instantly remembered, which is her seeing the kind of family that looked like they're all prepped up and all on the way to some kind of nice trip, weekend trip or whatever else. And she's like, no, you're going in vain. She mentally addressed the company in a coach and fur who were evidently going out of town for some merriment. And the dog you're taking with you won't help you. You won't get away from yourselves, right? That you won't get away from yourselves. Yeah. That yeah. points to so much of yeah. what she did yes. in her life. Yes. Yes. Always like running away, to, you know, to, we're going to go, uh, you know, overseas. We're going to go into this new house. We're going to live this new life. We're going to do running away from ourselves. But anywhere she would get to, she brought herself with her, right? Yeah. And, and that was part of her suffering. And then there's a, there's a part where she thinks of Ronsky, her like love affair, and she's like, what was he looking for in me? Not love mm. so much as the satisfaction of his vanity. Vanity, yeah. And, and then you go, well, what were, was Anna looking in yeah. for in Ronsky? Yeah. What, what made her fall in love so crazily in a man that she had spoken to two sentences at a train station and was willing to risk her husband, her son, and her whole life for. She didn't know that man. What made her? It was the vanity. It was the delight that such a man was falling for her and she had this magical spell over him. That's what lured her in, right? Nothing else. So she's like angry at him and thinking these terrible hurtful thoughts that he wasn't even looking for love he was just looking for his own vanity in her but that's actually what she was looking in, yeah. in him yeah. then at some point she sees some other dude walking around and he looks like i don't know some kind of a lawyer or something and he walks with a kind of swagger and he has like nice hair his hair done nicely and his is kind of his you know official paperwork or whatever under his uh, under his arm and she goes this one wants to astonish everybody and is very pleased with himself mm. right this one is astonished yeah. to, wants to astonish everybody and is very pleased with himself and you go what did she do you know yeah. what what was her main concern yeah. What was so great about her was that she was great at astonishing everybody mm -hmm. right and for a while she was very pleased with herself until she wasn't and then later, I highlighted this. If I could be anything else but a mistress who passionately loves only his caresses, but I cannot and do not yes. want to be anything else. And by this desire, I provoke his disgust. And he provokes my anger. And it yes. cannot be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise. I, 
Don't I know that he would not deceive me, that he doesn't have any intentions toward Princess Sorokin, that he is not in love with Kitty, that he will not be unfaithful to me? I know all that, but it's none the easier for me. If he is kind and gentle towards me out of duty, without loving me, and I am not to have what I want, that is a thousand times worse, worse even than yeah. anger. It's hell. And that is what we have. He has long ceased loving me. And where love stops, hatred begins. Hate. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so, it's such deep shit. I mean, again, yeah. out of context, I assume, well, I'm sure these things don't hit as hard, right? When yeah. you've gone through the travel yeah. of yeah. her whole life and drama, these things and these feelings she has towards certain people and thoughts hit differently. Yeah. But it... it struck me as significant how she was thinking if i cannot have his pure love and only have his duty and honesty and devotion yeah. then that's even worse than that but yeah. the crazy thing here is that one has to ask did they ever had real love whatever however you yeah. want to define that right yeah. they were in love but did they ever had the chance to develop love because their life story was so tumultuous that they went from madly, unexplainably in love to risking everything and having such huge drama that it was just a managing of all the drama. Yep. And then they were stuck with each other in a really difficult place. There was no time. There was no healthy, organic time for a seed of love to grow into yep. a real tree, right? Yep. Kind of um, threw themselves in, in such a tumultuous way now here's another thing where she sees somebody else and thinks thoughts about that person that are really i think pointing to her own life ah a beggar woman with a child she thinks she's to be pitied aren't we all thrown into the world only in order to hate each other and so to torment ourselves and others students going by laughing so yoza that was her son she remembered I also thought I loved him and used to be moved by my own tenderness, but I did live without him, exchanged him for another love, and didn't complain of the exchange as long as I was satisfied by that love. And with disgust, she remembered what it was that she called that love. Yeah. Yeah. Right? She looks at that, at that beggar woman with her child and is like, ah, you think we should pity you. We think that you love yeah. your child, but all this is nothing. It's like... Yeah. Yeah, motherfucker, because, you know, yeah. because that's how you feel about yourself, right? right. right. Is how you, you went feel to about an, yourself. Get to move to Italy in a mansion and have an artist life there, right? Abandoned your son. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, yeah. And, now, and now, because there's so much bitterness in herself and anger and disgust about herself, but she doesn't recognize that. At no point in here is she talking about herself. At no point before she dies does she go, I did not love. I had too much vanity. Right. I there's, there's like a splint there's a splinter in that part, right? Where the where she thinks to her son and how she exchanged yeah, his love but, for, right? But That's no, it. no, it's not. You know why? Because she is not critical with herself mm. she's critical with the concept of love mm. Mm. right she says ha you think you love your child and we think i was also once in brackets deceived in thinking mm -hmm. i love my child but then i threw away that love for somebody else <laughs> so what is love nothing it's all yeah, a piece yeah, yeah. that 
That is the, 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 the problem here. She's at no point thinking, I had vanity. I was never, I never really loved this person. I was running away from myself and my problems. I did a despicable thing of not protecting my child and, and honoring that child. At no point is she questioning her own life. She's questioning life. She's not, you know, giving a verdict over her love to these people. Yeah. She's giving a verdict over the concept of love. Yeah. You know, life is just a bunch of bullshit. We're tormenting each other. Love doesn't exist. We're all just running away from truth. We're all just full of it. But it's not all of us that are this. It's you. You are this way. You have lived your life this way. And yeah. now your whole reality is you know, falling apart and you're in this psychotic episode and on your way to your death, yeah. to your suicide, which is the logical consequence of thinking about life this way and yeah. being in this much of suffering. You see the world in her eyes. She sees the world so clearly right now. She understands these things. In her eyes, she now has a truth that everybody else is too foolish to accept. Right. Right. Right? How dark and useless and empty life is. And she sees all these examples in these other people. But it's just herself seeing her own life. Yeah. Right? But she cannot and, accept and also, responsibility for also it. Also, the almost entire length of the book since they got together, she's always doing this thing where she's like, yeah, outwardly, Oh, yeah, I'm not worthy of happiness. I don't even desire mm -hmm. happiness anymore because who am I? I did all these bad things. I'm a bad woman, right? But but everything she does is to the satisfaction of her happiness. And then, but but hourly she keeps saying, like, oh, I'm, I, I don't even want to be happy anymore. I don't deserve to be. I cannot even be happy anymore because of the bad things I did, right? But it's all it's all through the lens of society's view of her. Yeah, she's playing a role yeah. even in the moments where that are most intimate about her inner life mm. it appears that she's not aware of how she's not accepting her true thoughts and motivations and hence she's never able to understand herself and make the right decisions and also that self-deception is escalating so quickly through that cascading of decision making that it becomes an impossible riddle a labyrinth that she's so lost in that eventually she's like this is life just a labyrinth where everywhere there's a dead end this is pointless this is all people think this is some beautiful garden but it's not right but it's not that that's the the world it's that that's her world and the world she created because she was never honest with herself she was not honest about her marriage and why she got together with her husband uh, in the first place she was not honest what fancy what was fancy to her about that little spark and flirt with Vronsky she was not honest about her relationship with her son maybe she had never developed honest feelings to her son and had over proportionally devoted herself to her son because her marriage was so empty her life was so empty so she took on the role of being an incredible mother without being able to honestly feel that love truthfully yeah. and and on and on and on and on it was you know and, and as you said even the things that she did out of oh i'm such a good person look i i don't believe i'm good i don't believe i'm wise i don't believe i you know 
when you look at her actions, at every point in her actions, she's trying to maximize her own happiness. She's trying to maximize to get the perfect results for herself. She's doing this despicable thing of, you know, of cheating on her husband. And then in her mind goes, oh, even if he would throw me out, in the street and I would lose everything and it would spit on me and hit me, you know, that would be what I deserve. But when her husband forgives her and loves her and and wants to protect her and says, I'm at your mercy, I'll do whatever you want, she hates him for it. What is that? You know, what exactly is that? And then when he inevitably gets back to a bad place himself and he's like, you know what, I'm going to punish you. You're not going to get our son. He's going to stay with me. All along the way, she's like, I'm going to lose my son. And even if I lose my son and losing my son is going to part of it. At, at first, she was like, that's the thing I cannot do. So I cannot leave my husband. And then she's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, that might be the right thing. And maybe I should lose my son. And then when she does, she's out of her mind about it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. what? Yeah. What are you doing? Everything she yeah. says, she contradicts with her behavior at some yeah. point later on. Because yeah. she's playing a role to herself and to others. It's really the inner decay, the like falling apart internally by not being willing to see yourself, right? To really see what are my motivations, who am I, what do I want? And then at no point being able to accept the consequences of some of that behavior and always kind of morphing and warping the outer world. Even the whole episode towards the end before she takes her life, it's this kind of nothing really happened that is that crazy, right? Mm -hmm. She wanted a get like actually the lover uh, Vronsky, he he is the one that much more lives much closer to the truth because he does sacrifice so many things for her. Right? And then she you know wants to leave that house again and move again to some other place and then he's like he really doesn't want to do that but eventually gives in he's like all right i love her so much i'll do that too and he instead of doing it in two days he's like we're gonna do this in three days or something and she's had this whole psychotic breakdown over that right um you know what was interesting about that part also that was one part that one of the few parts where i read it And it brought back memories when I read it as a teenager. Mm. And as a teenager, I read it and I was like, this is too much. Come on. I was like, right? I couldn't, I couldn't. Mm. Now, having looked into <laughs> the barrel of life a little bit deeper, I read it and it's like, oh, shit. Yes. Yes. So yes. <laughs> and you know, uh, most of us will not be pushed to that extreme. Yeah. But all of us have visited that path to some degree, right? Where you're not honest and clear and clean with yourself and you project the inner demons to the outer world and you think it's the world or the people or this person. And then we're in kind of turmoil, internal and external turmoil. That if you keep on long enough, like she does, the only, the end station, the the, the destination is losing grip of life and then losing life itself. Um, The very last thing is the kind of the, the paragraph where she kills herself. So let's finish with that. Sitting on a star shaped sofa and waiting for the train, looking with revulsion at the people coming in and going out. 
They all disgusted her. She thought of how she would arrive at the station, write a note to him, and of what she would write, then of how he was now complaining to his mother, not understanding her suffering, about his situation, and how she would come into the room and what she would say to him. Then she thought of how life could still be happy and how tormentingly she loved and hated him and how terribly her heart was pounding. The bell rang. Some young man went by, ugly, insolent, and hurried, and at the same time conscious of the impression they produced. All right, it's actually much later where she throws herself uh, in the train station. I don't want to go that far. But again, I, I, look, the thing that I find so interesting is how much it registered on her, registers on her radar this young man, ugly, insolent, yeah. hurried, but at the same time conscious of the impression they produce. Impression. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's all she did her whole life. Yeah. It's like producing yeah. impressions. Yeah. That's all. There's no depth to any of the relationships she's had, but she was so impressive and was so good in creating impressions. Yeah. Uh, and now when she sees that in others, all she sees is hurried, ugliness, pettiness, yeah. Yeah. vanity. And also after that initial spark of love with Ronsky in the very beginning of the book, right? And then she returns back uh, and the husband picks up at the train station and she sees the husband and immediately she sees this ridiculous ears and she yeah. sees everything that's wrong and everything is, and she never knows. And then she meets her friends and everything again is like turned into this disgusting, repelling. What yes. is, how can I not have noticed this before? Yes. <laughs> but it's, it, isn't it interesting that the first thing that she notices when she arrives at the train station yeah. and she's had that little flirt with Ronsky Mm -hmm. And then she sees her husband. Her husband in that part of the book is described. He shows up at the train station as loving as he yeah. can, right? He yeah. missed her and he has real tenderness yeah. in her heart for her. And he's really he delighted. Really busy day, but made time to pick her up. To come and pick her, her up. And makes an effort. Yeah. And sh the first thing she notices is a vanity thing, is a, an external thing. Something in his ear that is fat and disgusting, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, isn't that interesting? Like that's the first thing she picks up is on something visual, right? Yeah. That she finds despicable. And then also, what's one of the first impressive things that Ronsky does to impress her? What is it? It's him, after somebody had thrown themselves in front of a train, it's him, because he wanted to impress her, going off from that company to pay some money to the wife of the yeah. person that jumped yeah. over the train so that somebody yeah. would come and thank him and tell him so she would be impressed that yeah. he's done yeah. such a nice thing, right? Yeah. Um, and there was even someone who mentioned that before, right, about the financial status of the of the widow or something like this. Right? Yeah, and, and she was, again, to because it was proper form. At no point do you really believe that people really cared in that circle about some poor person jumping in front of a train. She was also in proper form in the group of persons being very, very holy and very like, oh my God, this is such a tragedy. How terrible for the people. But it's all just words, right? There was no feeling to it because she was delighted at flirting with him. That was all. It was a flirt, but it was like, oh my God, how shocking. Isn't that really terrible? And then he goes off to pay some money to impress her. Oh, look, what kind of an impressive thing I did. 
But at no point ever later on in the book do they ever do something nice to others because they really want to do charity, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there's always some filling a hole or keeping up impressions mm -hmm. to others. Um, and then, you know, beautifully and tragically, it's written where that part where they meet and fall in love and have the flirt, which is the train station, at that empty little thing of somebody's dying and he's paying money to the widow to impress her at the train station. That's kind of where the loop closes and on her way to the train station, you know, she's losing her mind and then taking her life in the very same way, right? But also... The thing with her, with her suicide in this situation, is that she's driven to suicide partially because she's losing her mind, partially because she's seeing how, like, you know, it's suicide as revenge. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. she's not taking a life because her pain and suffering is so big and her weight is so big where she just sits there and she doesn't even know why everything's so dark that she just can't. She feels some people, they suicide to get rid of the burden for themselves and the world. They feel themselves and the world is such a burden that they're like, I want to rid myself of this. But she does it as revenge. She yeah. sees the world as so vile, as so ugly, as yeah. so despicable that this is the final act to beat them all, right? Yeah. To make Vronsky... To yeah, break to his heart, yeah, yes. to make him regret. She even, she even she even thinks it uh, leading up to it, where there's like, I know he's in the right, but I got to make him regret it, right? And then she yeah. she says it. Right? It's like, That's it. She. This is her. This is her. Her. She is painted this picture of reality, and all the people in the world is so despicable and disgusting that her final act is. To kill herself because that's the most painful thing she can think of yeah. to everybody else. And the more, most final thing, that's the thing she can do and they cannot even respond anymore. They'll have to live with that their whole life, right? Yeah. And so this is the most painful thing she could do to Vronsky. The most painful thing she could do to her husband or her ex-husband. Yeah. The most painful thing she could do to her son. The most painful thing she could do to all the people that love her. And that she has tormented along the way. None of these people have initiated any torment towards her, right? She has been the cause of all that torment to all these people. And then at the end, she takes her life in the most painful way she can think of to others, right? Yeah. Wow, that shit is so deep and so dark. But it is a, in its pattern, a very human story. Yes. Again, not all people that go on that journey go to the final destination of it, right? Walk it all the way to that point. Right. But how many things have we done to hurt others because mm -hmm. we were so hurt by them mm -hmm. that we could not think of well, all we wanted to do is punish them, even if the punishment was terrible for us as well? In small as well as in big ways, you know, one, yeah. one small way that we have discussed in the past where we are very similar is that when we would get or I would get mad at a lover, somebody I was in a relationship with, I would go so cold and so distant yeah. and feel like even when mentally the whole situation and, and emotionally had passed, I'm like, you know, I'm not even mad anymore. 
I have to keep up with this yeah, yeah. because yeah, the yeah, yeah. punishment I've handed out is not sufficient. Yeah. So, you know, I would have been fine after two hours, but I will keep this up for three days, five days. And mm -hmm. all along, I will suffer too. I hated yeah. feeling this cold, this tense, this distance all yeah. the time, although I didn't really feel that way. Mm -hmm. I hated it, but it was the proper punishment because, I, you know, because uh, my mind was telling me right. I need to punish this person. Right. And so what is that, right? That is an insane act. Yeah. <laughs> it's nothing else yeah. than an insane act of self-mutilation in some way and self-punishment to punish others. And it's also a lack of recognition that something happened here that I'm not willing to deal with honestly. I'm not willing to tell this person, this is exactly how I feel, or this is my boundary and I will not accept this anymore. And then if you're fully honest in your pain, honest in your boundaries, there's no reason for punishment. Right, You just set the boundaries and you communicate clearly and the people that don't fit within that framework will leave your life. There's no reason to hand up punishments that, in that framework. Yeah. You have to punish others when you're not honest with yourself and them, when you don't set boundaries and so you allow them to commit, commit crimes. Maybe they're not even aware of it or you see crimes everywhere committed and the other person doesn't even know. I had this once with, uh, with uh, uh, a girl that I was dating that I went to a party with. And I had a certain image in my mind of how I wanted her to act in that party towards me. And I never communicated that. She didn't know that. So she acted totally differently. And I was so mad at her and became so cold. And then I realized the insanity of this. Like, mm -hmm. you, I'm now about to hand you a punishment for a crime mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I've ne we've never talked about. I never told you yeah. this would be a crime. Yeah. And you never agreed yeah. that this that you shall live in this country where this is a crime and play towards this role as a as a yeah. citizen of it. It's all insanity and it's all yeah. projection. And at the end of the day, it all points towards something inside of us that we're not honest with. I also love the the masterfully twisted logic of Anna Karenina in that chapter where it's like, oh yeah, we're leaving in three days, in two days, right? And then from that moment on, everything that he does is proof that he doesn't love her anymore, yes. that he's just wanted to get rid of her, but feels burdened and, and responsible. So he's, and no matter what, everything gets twisted and turned. And it's indisputable in her mind that this is what this means. And he's doing this only because of that, right? And so, oh, when you read that, it's okay. And, and you know, the, there is, there's a beautiful dance of truth there because he yeah. apparently loves her. But yeah. also in the beginning, it's yeah, yeah. like 99% love and 1% right. a little bit of like a burden or doubt. And then it's 90-10 yeah. and then it's 80-20. Right. And, after, and this, what, yes. after what they went through, yeah. he, you know, at the worst point, he's maybe yeah. at a, you know, 60-40, right? Right. Still and he has, still has a good life. He's still like social, you know, for a... The, the blame in society is on the woman, not on the man, right? So he's still going out, meeting people, meeting friends, doing things, going places. She's at home. The pariah woman where, you know, every once in a while someone comes to visit her, but they are also not the centerpiece of society. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. But also, uh, he has love for her, but he also feels the burden. Yeah, at times, yeah. feels responsible. Yeah, and. Yeah. She picks up on that, right? And yes. now we, she yes. could pick up on how much he still loves her going yeah. through all of this. 
or she can yeah. pick up on the burden or the doubt or the, 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 yeah. the you know, responsibility. But what does she yeah. do? She zeroes out of all the love yes. and she amplifies all of that. And even if she didn't take her life, what would happen? She, through her behavior, punishing him for seeing that he feels burdened, some, she would mm-hmm. only increase the burden he feels and decrease mm-hmm. the love until she mm-hmm. made that her... Um, you know, her prediction would come true, would be a self, uh, you know, self-realizing, self, self-fulfilling prophecy because of her actions, yeah. not because it was inevitable. Because yeah. she chose to look at one area of him and amplify it through her behavior versus yeah. the other area, which is the one that she wants. Yeah. Why? Out of fear, right? And also him as a final point for this. This book is so beautiful. This book is all of life's hum- all of humanity in one book through through mm-hmm. one story. And you know, there's the counter to Anna, which is not the main part of the book. That's why it's not called, you know, uh, that's why it's not called after him. But there's the counterpoint of a person that, you know, that lived a very different life mm-hmm. to the life of Anna Karenina and where he ends up with. But Vronsky, after she kills herself. Oh, you don't know that. You're not there yet. It doesn't matter. It's not, that, yeah. it's not that important of a point, so I can make it. Right? As one thing that Vronsky does after she kills herself, much later in the book, is that he you know, en- enrolls himself to go and fight at a war of, of the, uh, you know, I think, of a neighboring country, right, to support their cause. But but it's really to sacrifice his life. Mm. And publicly, it's seen in incredible esteem. Again, you know, Vronsky is doing something that people like look at and go, look, he's so tormented by her suicide that he's going to do this heroic thing and fight for a great cause and, you know, uh, uh, you know, sacrifice his life for it. But when you look into Vronsky's motivation, it really is the violence he has in his heart and he just wants to go somewhere to act out that violence because he's so enraged and ang- angry about how his life turned out and how this whole this la- last act of her turned out that he wants to kill. Right? <laughs> he wants to go somewhere and kill and be killed. So the motivation is really violence, but the society is like, look, in his like uniform and with his sword, and he's going to be a commander and go into this war to help our neighbors and do a good thing. How heroic and self-sacrificing. But it's not. There's nothing heroic and self-sacrificing about it at all. When it comes to Vronsky, there was another another chapter that I found really interesting also where he met his old classmate, right? And the whatever it was, classmate or, or, or from, from military history. And and that guy was all focused on his career and by the time was a general and had, you know, all the wealth and, and social capital and everything. And they had this conversation and he was... And it was this like, oh, I don't care about these things anymore. I'm I'm in love. I care about more deeper things, right? And the other one was like, oh, yeah, I thought so too. But uh, And they have this argument. <laughs> and both are kind of pretending that uh, they've got it all figured out. But it was it was a delicious section. Yeah, because you, 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 the way that Tolstoy writes it, in between the lines and before and after, you know that what Vronsky was telling the guy is mm. full of shit, but is also partially true. And so he himself yeah. is at times confused about what is real right. here, right? right. He's like right. at times tormented about his career and all his ambitions, 
not yeah. panning out the way he want them. And part was, you know, what was the start again? Like the start of his decline in his career is not the affair with Anna. That is an accelerator of the decline of his career. The start of the decline of his career was that he was sent to some post to do. Right, he was given it. some task some job and he rejected it and why did he reject it he rejected it because he thought it would be seen as an act that he doesn't care about his career so he's not taking this vanity step as a career hungry person and that would give him higher status and he miscalculated and people were like well we've given him this fast track because he's such a career driven and he's not taking it well this means that he's not the guy he's not that interested so we're not gonna we're gonna degrade him now and slow him down so he did this thing to pretend he's not so career obsessed to make his career go faster because people would see how you know how pure his heart and intentions are and he miscalculated right that was the beginning of the decline accepted also yes and he can because he still has options right He, he still could get back on track But even then, when he's at that point where he could say, "All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this again," he still has to hold. Like he can't. He's so afraid of losing face yes. that he holds onto it and says, like, "No, I don't yes. care about these things." Yes. Now this is losing face, right? Yeah. Um, holding on to your person, your personality, the perception of people of you and your own inner image of you is really what is driving him to many, many poor decisions that are in conflict with his inner truth. Mm. He's always in conflict with his inner truth to hold on to that. Yeah. Also, when he got into painting, right? Yes. That entire thing. (laughs) There's a a beautiful quote in there that I won't be able to pick up as quickly where the the real painter that they meet at the village how he thinks mm. of Vronsky and his painting. <laughs> yeah, you shared that quote. Or I actually, no. maybe I can uh, quickly pull it up on uh, WhatsApp because I, I think mm. I took a, a picture of it. Um, yeah, you did, you did. Uh, but I'm sending so many quotes your way. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, ah, here, yeah, here it is. So the, this is a part about that painter and his opinion of, on Vronsky. And now Vronsky is a super rich guy and he's in this tiny village and he's like, obviously interested in art and he's a want to be a patron of the art he wants to give this poor kind of grumpy uh, artist guy money and fame even this right it's so interesting because before they meet him ronsky has already made up his mind and wants that artist to be a struggling artist whom he comes to help and save right and then he has this friend who knows the guy he's like actually he's kind of You know, he's not doing great, but he's kind of... And Ronsky's, but surely he needs help, right? <laughs> surely he's in, yeah, dire, yeah. in dire need. <laughs> yeah, because, and because I well, want him you know. to. I want him to. So, okay. Yeah. So, is the, the final quote before we, we wrap up for, for today. So, this is some, something that artist is thinking about Ronsky. He knew it was impossible to forbid Ronsky to toy with painting. He knew that he and all the dilettantes had every right to paint whatever they liked, but he found it unpleasant. It was impossible to forbid a man to make a big wax doll and kiss it, but if this man with the doll came and sat in front of a man in love and began to caress his doll the way the man in love caressed his beloved, the man in love would find it unpleasant. 
Mikhailov, which is the artist, experienced the same unpleasant feeling at the sight of Vronsky's painting. He felt it ridiculous, vexing, pathetic, and offensive. I'm like, this is so yeah, fucking that's... dope. So beautifully expressed. You know, you can't forbid somebody to make a, va- a, a, you know, a plastic doll and kiss it, right? I mean, everybody can yeah. do whatever they want. But if that person sat next to you and was yeah. doing anything you do with your yeah. woman that you love, you would find it yeah. very irritating. That would be yeah. very... Yeah. And that yeah. was what he was seeing. And that was yeah. also the truth. It was Ronsky yeah. looking at an artist and pretending he's an artist yeah. to make himself yeah. appear a certain way. Right without it being the real thing he was not in love with art he was not in love with painting it was just all for impressions it was all for you know showing off to society which is really the core of Anna Karenina is the the role and the danger of society in our lives like playing to society playing the game that society lays out for us playing to impress, playing to charm, playing for opinions, playing for reputation, playing for admiration, playing for approval of society. You play that game and leads to really, really, really terrible places. Um, and that's really, I think, the core theme of that entire book. Yeah. This is also with, with that artist, Mikhailov, or whatever his name was, right? I loved how he flip-flopped in like looking at these people and seeing like, oh, again, these rich and fatuated, you know, now they come here to the artist and they think, ah, whoever, whatever, I don't care what they think, right? To then, when they look at it and suddenly he's like, he sees, oh my God, they see the magnificence in my work. And then he's flip-flopping back and forth between these two modes where it's like, these people know nothing. It's like, oh, they see the greatness in my work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. When when he is being uh, yeah. when he's being complimented, uh, yeah. he can't resist yeah. to yeah. fully accept. But then he also he also picks up when they make a compliment simply because of politeness, and then he gets again in this vicious like, ah, these people. Right? <laughs> What an amazing book! Mm. Uh, but that last part, especially to me. The walk to the, tra- the, the, the travel to the train station, which yeah. is her final Super part intense. of her life, is yeah. so intense. And it's, to me, such a potent summary. At no point is it like, and she was reviewing her life and thinking through all the steps of the things. It's so masterfully hidden, yeah. but that is it. Yeah. Is she's, yeah. she's going through her entire life and seeing it played out in the world in front of her and other people and is so angry, so at war so disgusted by it that she can't but be driven to suicide as revenge right wow what the fuck 